Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. As Justin Trudeau continues to insist he will drive a federally imposed carbon tax if the provinces don't align with his plan for a pan-Canadian tax, a growing firewall of provincial opposition to Trudeau and his tax continues to build. I spoke today with Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, and with Brian Pallister, the Premier of Manitoba. Manitoba just withdrew its carbon tax proposal. Australia introduced and put into place a national carbon tax, and after two years, Australia rescinded the tax, declaring it was damaging the country's economy and the well-being of Australian families. Brad Batten is an Australian member of Parliament. He explained. Judge Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the United States Supreme Court today. A Rasmussen poll suggests that 31% of Americans believe the United States will descend into civil war within the next five years. Last Sunday on the program, former Alberta prosecutor Scott Newark revealed he'd researched convicted child murderer Terry Lynn McClintock's options of parole and found McClintock is eligible not 16 years from now, as was publicly believed and reported, but in fact, six years from now. I spoke to Scott about how he got around to investigating that. The Islamic Circle of North America in Canada is hosting a weekend conference in Toronto. It's called Carry the Light. I spoke to two critics of the conference, Tom Quiggan, intelligence expert who worked with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces of the United Nations, and Rahil Raza, educator and author of Their Jihad, Not My Jihad. Scott Ho is the Premier of Saskatchewan. The Premier spent a lot of time with us over the past several months, and we appreciate that. He's back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Premier, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it, Roy. You feel you have some friends now? <laughs> the table isn't as lonely. I was uh, I was thinking uh, back to the the statement that uh, that my predecessor and friend uh, Brad Wall had said a number of years ago uh, about this uh, this uh, ineffective taxes. Is what's the point of collecting it if you're if you're just going to give it back uh, with without um, you just just what's the point of, of it in any way, shape, or form? And I think as the as the actual cost comes closer to the people across the nation, uh, they're starting to realize uh, that the an- there is no answer to that question. You know, we're going to play back a little later on this hour an interview I did last year with Brad Batten. He's an Australian member of Parliament. He's also a shadow minister for the environment in one of the Australian states. And he talked about how over a two-year period, Australia discovered that the carbon tax they had was actually harming the economy, harming entrepreneurial spirit, harming Australian families, so they're very quickly jettisoned it, and so we're going to play back um, why they've done that. There's, there's no point in us, you and I feel the same way, uh, following the Australian example. We can just preclude this. But what, what's your sense about Mr. Trudeau's, and that firewall is building, what's your sense about Mr. Trudeau's threat that if you don't join me, I'll just go it alone? Well, that's a decision the federal government is going to have to make on January 1st of this year. Are they going to impose, uh, you know, this uh, unexplainable tax on essentially uh, what we're looking at today uh, is four Atlantic provinces, uh, the province of Ontario, the province of Manitoba, the province of Saskatchewan, the province of Alberta, and quite likely going to have to have a conversation with the with the province of British Columbia is, 
as uh, the the investment that we were happy to see the investment attraction uh, they had uh, on the around the LNG plant it also includes some uh, some uh, concessions with respect to the carbon tax. So this is a uh, this is a question for the federal government. It's a question they need uh, to answer: is are they going to impose this tax uh, across the nation of Canada, essentially barring? Potentially Quebec, and and uh, I've talked with Premier Elect Legault uh, there with respect to his focus on on the economy and the people of Quebec. So the the question actually isn't so much for the provinces and the and the strong provincial leaders that we have across the nation. The the questions for the prime minister is: Are you going to and how are you going to explain this tax uh, that you're going to have to impose on most of the nation of Canada? Can you share with us what the Premier Elect of Quebec said to you about the carbon tax? Um, we didn't talk specifically about the carbon tax. I, I just shared some congratulations, agreed to uh, talk uh, um, in the very near future. And I look forward to uh, to working with uh, Premier Legault. And I, I think also I, I'd be fair to say that we thank uh, Premier Couillard for his uh, his leadership of the, of the province uh, and his relationship with others across the nation. Didn't always agree, um, but he was, a, he, was a, he was a good leader. And we look forward to engaging with Premier Legault. And I, you know, I would I would just say this. Uh, Premier Ford had done a, did a swing here this week out into Western Canada, the first time an Ontario Premier has been in the province of Saskatchewan for about a decade. And uh, with, with strong provincial leaders uh, propping up a, across this nation, I commend them on, on engaging with those leaders, uh, aside from the regular engagement points where we have at the Council of Federation meeting and other opportunities. And I, I, I'm taking note of that as I, I think uh, that engaging as provincial leaders across the nation and going into each of our territories to be- better understand our provincial, uh, our, our provincial situations and the diversity of our great nation is a, a great step forward. And I, I commend Premier Ford for that. Premier Mo, what uh, importance level did uh, did you and Premier Ford ascribe to the carbon tax issue? I'm sure you talked about a number of issues, uh, important issues for both provinces and for the country, but where did carbon tax rank in your discussions? Oh, in this particular discussion, it's number one, and, and here's why. Uh, just the simple cost of the economy. Um, the, the cost of the economy in Saskatchewan is in excess of a billion dollars uh, each and every year, and it's a cost uh, to that economy that essentially will have uh, no environmental benefits. And you can't show me a place where a carbon tax on its own has uh, has reduced emissions or had any positive environmental outcomes whatsoever, aside from moving those, those emissions to other areas of the world. Australia realized it. We're realizing it here in Canada. Canada. The federal government even realizes this because they are not moving forward with, and I, I, I don't accept the argument that if a carbon tax, if not a carbon tax, then what? Uh, the federal government is also moving forward with regulations like the clean fuel standard, regulations around upstream and downstream emissions on, on Bill C, with Bill C-69. Uh, the, the, the federal government also acknowledges that a carbon tax doesn't work or they wouldn't be moving forward uh, with these other regulations that are essentially uh, as well are are designed to stop pipelines and stop industrial uh, industrial development in in many parts of our of our nation, except for where they choose uh, where they choose to forgive a portion of the carbon tax in certain areas of the nation. So we're we are heading into a very problematic uh, problematic uh, atmosphere here in in the nation. And uh, in a year's time, we're all going to vote. Yes, we are. Yes, we are, and the people of this nation are going to have a, a what I think will be one of the, the um, most impactful decisions that, uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. Premier, can you stay with us a few minutes longer? I, I shouldn't ask you that all the time, but uh, do you have a few I minutes more? Have, I always have time for you, Roy. Okay, thank you, Premier. Premier Mo, with uh, Premier Pallister coming on board and uh, saying he's had enough with the lack of respect from the federal government displayed toward him and his government, that's why he's 
withdrawn his carbon tax plan. Uh, that has to be uh, uh, a, a significant, uh, I, I don't want to use the word bonus, but it has to be a plus for the provinces which, which are opposing the, uh, the federal government. Well, I, I think it is, and it's a, uh, a realization of a, of a number of things. Is one is the ineffectiveness of of uh, this this federal policy, and I, I think it's also important to understand that the government of uh, Manitoba and the Premier of Manitoba, they've not re- pulled their their green plan. Uh, they have a, a plan in place. Uh, what they've pulled is the the taxing portion of that plan. So they continue to move forward with uh, you know all of the plans that they have uh, with respect to reducing emissions and enhancing sequestration and really doing what they can to uh, approach climate change from the province of Manitoba's perspective, which I think all of the provinces are working on in good faith and, and committed to uh, years ago at in Vancouver to the Prime Minister uh, prior to all of this this whole conversation that has broken out. So it's important to note that Manitoba continues uh, you know, to work. And I think when you look at the hydropower and the zero-till agriculture and the manufacturing uh, in the province of Manitoba, they set a great example for how to do things right from a sustainability perspective and, and a carbon perspective. So I, I'm not surprised that the, the government of Manitoba has realized that Manitobans don't don't need to be paying a tax in addition to all of the investments that they've already made. That's been our perspective in Saskatchewan. And, and I think in fairness, it's increasingly becoming a Canadian perspective. Let's take the, the innovation and knowledge that we have and let's offer it to the world so that we can make a difference in what is a global challenge. Let's not try to tax our industry so that they move to other areas of the yeah. world. It's important to make that distinction, you're right, about the plan vis-a-vis the, uh, the, the tax collection aspect of it. Um, are you still going forward with the court case? Oh, for sure. For sure. And we announced uh, uh, this week that we, uh, and we did, we intervened uh, in the Ontario court case as well. So we're moving forward and we're asking the federal government in the same way uh, with respect to the TMX pipeline, where they're respecting the courts uh, in that particular case. Uh, they should just uh, stand back from their backstop and respect the courts uh, with respect to the two so far uh, reference cases that are in front of the courts now. They should they should put the backstop on hold. I think they should actually get rid of it, um, but they should put it most certainly on hold and respect the outcome come of the courts. Is what Mr. Trudeau is saying about TMX, and we just heard a clip before I started speaking with you again, is what he's saying about uh, about TMX making any sense at all, just from a pragmatic point of view? No, it makes uh, no, no sense. Uh, and really, uh, when you compare it with what's being said on other topics of conversation here, um, the, the federal government is, is backing uh, themselves into somewhat of a conundrum, I, I would say. with the case, You're starting to see their priorities shine through. In the case of a carbon tax, they have a deadline uh, that they put forward. They're willing to use infrastructure funding or, or not providing that infrastructure funding to some provinces to enforce uh, or entice or, or really strong-arm provinces uh, to their way to their way of thinking, not a collaborative relationship in any way, shape, or form. In the case of L- this LNG plant that comes forward, uh, they're willing to uh, work with provinces on on uh, forgiving part of that very carbon tax uh, that is there. They're willing to, um, uh, you know, not talk about the offshore traffic that is going to be present uh, with that particular plant, and they're willing uh, to uh, most certainly move forward with a pipeline in that particular instance. Um, when we get to TMX, uh, there's no timeline set with respect to the first further consultation that they're going to do. They're, they're respecting the courts uh, in that particular case, not in the carbon tax case. And you're seeing this uh, variability of, uh, of uh, adhering uh, to, to their, to their uh, principles, if you will, depending on what the priorities of, of the federal cabinet are. And we're losing billions of dollars. 
we're losing uh, billions of dollars just in Saskatchewan alone, which by no stretch is a uh, you know one of the largest populated populated provinces in the nation. Uh, we're losing just on the oil differential about four billion dollars each and every year out of our economy. It's a tremendous loss uh, to to the people of the province, even larger loss to the people of Canada. And uh, will you be active in uh, next year's federal election campaign? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm a provincial premier, and I will always advocate on behalf of of the the people of Saskatchewan's interests. Uh, we are always uh, Canada first when we're outside of this nation, and we have a couple of trade ministers uh, in Israel right now advocating on behalf of Saskatchewan and Canada's interests. Um, but uh, you know, as we uh, near uh, any provincial or federal election, I will always advocate on behalf of the the interests of Saskatchewan people, Saskatchewan jobs, and the families uh, that I represent. Premier, thank you for the time. I was going to ask you about China, but we've run out of time. But I gathered from what I read from on your Twitter account uh, that went well. So we'll talk again soon, and I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Anytime, Roy. You have a wonderful weekend. We're uh, trying desperately to get through our harvest here in Saskatchewan and, and feed the world. Well, and happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks for all you do for us. Scott Moe from Saskatchewan. That's right, the breadbasket. So yesterday, I had an opportunity to speak with Brian Pallister, the Premier of Manitoba. And just a couple of days ago, Premier Pallister announced that he's also not going to be collecting the carbon tax that uh, Ottawa wants him to collect. So have a listen to the conversation about why the Premier of Manitoba decided as he did. Premier, you were uh, not on side with uh, Manitoba carbon tax at the outset of the Prime Minister's demand for his pan-Canadian province's developed carbon tax. Could you remind us, please, what your concerns were and why you did eventually propose a made-in-Manitoba flat tax? Well, we we actually, Roy, did a extensive listening. And uh, our, in particular, I'd say our small business community just said, look, if you can flatten it, make it like the prairie horizon, it's going to be way better for us. And, you know, we proposed that and, of course, haven't enacted it because we just feel now that the threat of Trudeau coming in and doubling it up and raising it, as you know, the model the demands, it's just too much of a risk for us as our economy is recovering from years of NDP mismanagement. So we listened to people and we came up with the plan and we gave the feds a year to be reasonable about it, but they don't want to be reasonable. So uh, we're going to fight them now. Was this uh, largely due to the Prime Minister's visit or a result of the Prime Minister's visit last month uh, to Winnipeg? I'd say only in part, Roy, because remember, the day we came out with our plan, which the Prime Minister and his Environment Minister, Ms. McKenna, have acknowledged is the best green plan any province has put forward, okay? They came out that afternoon and said, not good enough for us. Since then, they've been, uh, you know, making a big deal out of Manitoba being on side with them at every opportunity, but we have been behind the scenes regularly discussing how they uh, need to respect Manitoba's green record. We, we are, of course, the largest investors in hydroelectricity per capita in the country, triple what Quebec does, triple what BC does, and there's no credit whatsoever for Manitobans in that uh, federal plan on that. And so we're saying, look, we deserve the respect that, uh, that uh, our investments show uh, we have earned. Uh, you know, our hydro debt alone, Roy, is going to pass our whole provincial debt here in two or three years. And this is not chicken feed. We're talking billions of dollars. Manitobans actually already pay. And that's what I'm getting from folks around the province. They're saying, look, we're already paying. <laughs> you know, we don't deserve to be double taxed and get nothing back in return. What did uh, Justin Trudeau want for Manitoba? Well, he wanted us to acquiesce to the federal plan. And of course, 
we have a, a developed, uh, with the help of a lot of Manitobans, a 57-page treatise on how we're going to fight climate change. One page is carbon tax. 56 to six pages is cleaning up old mining sites, expanding hydro, electric options for people, tr public transit. I could go on. The fact is we're working on our green plan, and we're, we're ready to be measured on it. But we certainly don't appreciate uh, being disrespected by Ottawa. Look, you know me; I'm six foot eight, and I know for sure one size does not fit all, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> I got the feeling, listening to Justin Trudeau about the carbon tax from the very beginning that he started talking about a pan-carbon or pan-Canadian carbon tax. It was going to be all about what he wanted, what the prime minister's vision was, what his government's vision was, and I don't get the feeling, and I hear you stating this, I think, that he has much interest in what the provinces may have to offer to counter his plan. Well, sadly, that seems to be demonstrated in some of the comments from his ministers and some of the uh, uh, rather arbitrary directives they've sent out, Roy. But I don't doubt his sincerity in the sense of wanting to battle climate change. What I do doubt is the effectiveness of the way they're going about it. They've made this all about a carbon tax. And really, it isn't just about a carbon tax. Frankly, lots of jurisdictions in the world have successfully reduced emissions without a carbon tax. It has to be about fighting climate change and what's the most effective way to do that. Now, I just say again, how about investing in a pipeline that takes green hydro energy across Canada and helping all of us get off the carbon-dependent sources of power? Wouldn't that be a reasonable thing to do? We're, we're, we're here in this country loving it because it's a diverse place. And each province doesn't need the same mandate from the prime minister. What we need is respect for the differences and the diversity that we demonstrate. We, we can, and we are in Manitoba, very green and getting greener, and we're proud of that. Uh, we don't deserve federal government doesn't respect our record, doesn't respect our plan, and frankly is trying to put its hands into the pockets of hardworking Manitoba families when we're just struggling to get people out of financial difficulties and to a more secure future. One of the issues or one of the questions I've had all along is whether I can in fact believe Mr. Trudeau's promise, his commitment, that carbon tax revenues raised by the provinces will be returned to the provinces. And I say that because they don't appear to have a plan on how to do this. So is, well, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it gullible to expect that they're going to follow through on that commitment to return the money to the provinces? Well, there's, look, they leave themselves, of course, open to two questions. One... Uh, would this be politically motivated? Okay, and that, I mean, that's always going to be uh, suspicion, isn't it? And, and, and two, even if it wasn't, and even if it was all going back to do the best you could to get carbon down, is it the right way to go about doing it? Or would it be better to respect the people who've worked so hard to combat the challenge of climate change in provincial jurisdictions have already invested hundreds of millions, billions of dollars like Manitoba has, and others too. And would that be a better model? And I think that's a matter of debate. One thing for sure, uh, once revenue starts flowing into government's hands, it becomes a habit, doesn't it, Roy? And I'll tell you, we're, we're bucking 17 years of the NDP putting their hands in Manitobans' pockets and taking out higher and higher taxes every year here. And we've really made an effort to find efficiencies, reduce spending, and, and buck up our social programs on the basis of better results. And we're getting... Uh, progress being made, but what we don't need is the federal government coming in, taking two, three, four, five billion dollars out of Manitobans' hands, and then trying to get credit 
we're sending it back willy-nilly to various people within our province. That's not the way to run things. So now what for Manitoba Premier and what for Ottawa? Trudeau's facing a the prime minister, facing a federal election in a year, and opposition to his carbon tax scheme may range by the time we get to the campaign from New Brunswick to Alberta. Well, it uh, could expand. I can tell you from my discussions with other premiers, he doesn't have a lot of lovers of this approach in any of the provinces. There might be some that acquiesce because their previous plans were respected, Quebec and B.C. Uh, That's the case. But again, I'd emphasize if he respects those two provinces so much, maybe he should respect Manitoba. We invest three times as much in clean hydroelectricity uh, per capita as those two provinces do. So nothing against my friends in those two provinces here. I'm just saying, you know, respect has to be earned, and I believe Manitobans are earning it by getting themselves into a a position where we're really working hard. Uh, We're 98% uh, hydro here, and we're zero coal. No other jurisdiction that has the ability to say that. So, look, we don't deserve the disrespect we've been shown in recent days. Uh, We've kept the same position. We've dealt with the federal government respectfully. Uh, I've been... Uh, you know, I've been willing to take the political risks that go along with saying, look, we, we're ready to do our part. And, uh, and uh, that's been something that basically uh, hasn't resulted in any respect from the federal government back to our province. Manitobans deserve uh, that respect. Canadians deserve that respect. And I, I don't think it's been forthcoming as of yet. Premier, one more question for you. You mentioned the other premiers. Was there any consultation between you and Premier Moe and possibly Premier Ford about the move you were going to make on behalf of Manitoba? No, there wasn't, but I certainly respect both premiers very much, and I know that they have their own uh, approaches on this issue. And uh, I, I would only say this. My, my concern is, and, can, uh, and it remains, to stand up for Manitoba in this issue. But I am also, as you are, a citizen of this country, and uh, I want to do our part to make sure we leave this place better for our kids and grandkids not dirtier, and not in a worse financial predicament either. So those two things need to both be considered here, and I'm not sure the federal government's considering them. I go back a few months to when the feds decided they were going to tax small businesses and farms uh, real hard. We led the fight against that, and we're going to stand up on this one too. Uh, we We just think that the country could be run a lot better than the way it's been demonstrated on this issue. Couldn't agree with you more, Premier, and so many opportunities and options have been left to just fester, and I think of the pipeline opportunities that we've had and and still have if the federal government were just to get going on it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a beautiful country, and saying that, of course, it's going to be more beautiful if we work cooperatively together on finding opportunities. And that means that means not not just uh, raising taxes. It means probably the opposite. We, we we have to understand we can't run away from global markets. We especially uh, as we've seen this uh, free trade uh, discussion go on at length and the tariff uh, threats that were impo- uh, you know were hung over our heads. I think this is the time, for example, uh, Roy, to knock down interprovincial barriers to trade and get us working better together as a country. These are the kinds of things I've been driving, and I think that uh, there's a real appetite among Canadians to support the growth of the Canadian family, the Canadian economy, uh, but that needs, that needs real uh, strategies, and it, it means real cooperation. So, uh, again, uh, you know, I mean no dis- disrespect. I say these things about the federal government more in sadness than in anger. I, I just simply uh, believe there is, uh, there's an obligation to show respect for the diversity of our country here that has not been evidenced by the approach that the uh, feds have taken thus far. Premier, thank you for the time. I appreciate it.
Real pleasure, Roy. Nice to talk with you. All the best. Premier Brian Pallister of Manitoba. So Australia tried the carbon tax, and I spoke with Brad Batten, an Australian member of parliament, about that, about the tax, and why Australia got rid of it. Have a listen. Mr. Batten, in 2014, Australia did away with its national carbon tax. Why? Uh, we had a, uh, some reviews on that carbon tax. At the time, Tony Abbott was our leader federally um, and obviously won the election uh, on the axe to tax was his, uh, his slogan during that time. The carbon tax, when it was brought in, uh, and very similar to the position you're in now with um, Justin Trudeau, there was no case studies, there was no groundwork done, there was no understanding how it was going to affect business, how it was going to affect families, particularly with costs and increased electricity. And then the result of that was businesses started to um, get concerned about what was going to happen with their future and how much it was going to um, cost them in the long run. The uh, centre-left parties or the left-wing parties were trying to sell it that the cost of this was just, an, you know, the big businesses were going to pay and the big businesses were going to have to um, work out ways to either save on carbon or pay out of their own pockets, a bit of a penalty for them. The reality was uh, all of us know big businesses pass on those costs and that goes down to family homes. So that was when we got involved more and more from the uh, the Liberal Party over here now, obviously people over there have to understand the Liberal Party over here is a centre-right party, not a centre-left. So we actually started to focus on how that was going to affect families um, and the actual costs on that. And there was a range in how much it was going to cost, but the implementation of it was going to cost about $150 per year to a family. That was going to increase, increase quite quickly. On the same model over there with the scaling of the carbon tax, that was going to increase quite quick, quickly to over $1,000 per family estimated. So 2014, the decision is made to scrap the carbon tax because it's harming Australian business, it's harming families, and it's also causing concern uh, among the business community, and you can't move forward in business if you have concerned business leaders who are going to have to invest. If they're not comfortable with what's going to happen with our investment, they won't invest. Yeah, instability. If you've got a, a government that's or policies out there that are creating instability, you will have less and less, obviously, investment throughout your state or country. Um, I'll focus on Victoria. And we had a lot of um, uh, investment in Victoria, particularly around aluminium smelters. Um, we obviously have coal. We still use coal power here in, in Victoria. One of our coal plants has closed recently, and that put a lot of concern back on families if you were putting carbon on those. The sad thing is uh, in Victoria, one of our state governments has gone on the line and they've put a $250 million tax on coal, uh, which has created the closure of one of our plants down here. And we're talking about baseload energy. And if, if you haven't got baseload energy, you've got uh, more instability. And so we've got manufacturers now saying, well, if you're not giving us any security around coal, if you're not giving us any security around the cost, then why would we want to invest in your state or country? That was all started from the carbon tax. It started a message out there that they wanted to increase tax on any carbon that was uh, output. And it was something that, as we said, we, we really focused on how that was going to affect the families and started to get the case studies done on that. We just spoke with um, the uh, representative of the, um, the Fraser Institute, a think tank in this country. And he pointed out that the four provinces that have carbon taxes have really not implemented them well. And what this turned out to be is essentially just another tax on Canadians. Was the carbon tax ultimately just going to be another tax? Did it turn out to be just another tax or did it actually help the environment? No, it definitely did turn out to be another tax. And I think from uh, from memory, I'm going off memory here, but 2014 a report came out. Carbon 
uh, output actually increased in Australia during the time of the carbon tax. So to say that it was actually going to reduce carbon output was a, a, a bit of a lie uh, from the government at the time. They had That was their focus going forward. In Victoria alone, just the government themselves is one of the largest providers or largest outputters of carbon. Uh, in Victoria, they've made the changes themselves. They haven't got a carbon tax, but they've been putting pressure on, on companies for carbon to reduce it and again passing on those costs. At the same time, government itself has increased its carbon output, including the Department of Environment, has had a major increase in uh, carbon outputs. So if you can't lead uh, by example on reducing carbon, and then I think you're in, in, a, in a real issue there. And the reality is, Roy, uh, private enterprise are some of the best in the world at putting in new ideas and new technologies and they look at things to improve costs of running their business and most modern technologies like most modern cars, like most modern houses, all have a reduced carbon output. We should be putting it more pressure back onto the private enterprise to actually do that themselves and most of them are already focusing on that because they have better outcomes which is a better, better on the bottom line for them. Brad Batten, the Australian Member of Parliament, talking to us about why his country decided it was not going to stay with the carbon tax. Fran Coombs is the managing editor for Rasmussen Polling, Rasmussen Reports, and uh, former editor of the Washington Times. Fran walked us through on an almost weekly basis in 2016 for the summer and the fall, heading to the November 6th election, which saw Donald Trump uh, become the president of the United States. Fran, thank you for coming back on the show. If, if it had gone the other way, if it had been Hillary Clinton, we, we, we wouldn't be seeing anything like this. We'd see Republicans upset at a at a nominee that, that Clinton would have come up with, but I, I doubt we would have be seeing the kind of developments that we're seeing now. I, I suspect not, Roy. I mean, if you look back at the uh, Sotomayor and Kagan uh, votes, which were the two nominees to the court that Obama made, uh, Republicans, probably 20, 25 Republicans voted for both of them uh, so that their, their confirmation votes were up in the 70s. Uh, we haven't seen anything like this. So this is probably Bork and Thomas uh, uh, back in the back, uh, you know, 25 years ago are the kinds of things that you compare it to. How deeply are Americans divided on this issue? And is the division just Republican versus Democrat, or does it become more complicated? Is it more complex? Is it region? Is it gender? Is it, is it, demo- is it, is it age? Uh, how does it play out? I suspect that it's it's more divided inside the Beltway than it is outside in America. Um, uh, there's no doubt that if Democrats throughout the country are being told, "Oh my God, uh, the Republicans are going to take the Supreme Court to the right," um, we know there's still a lot of strong anti-Trump sentiment in the country. Although I suspect that that has been dying down in recent months. Um, so I th- there is certainly a division out there, but I don't. I honestly don't feel that among average Americans on the street uh, that, that it's nearly as vicious as it is inside the Beltway here in Washington. Why did Kavanaugh's confirmation eventually go forward? What was the determining factor? Well, I think at the end of the day, the accusations again. Well, first of all, the last-minute nature of the allegations, uh, and then the fact that they couldn't be corroborated. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, Susan Collins' speech yesterday was spectacular. I really hope you yourself saw it. I did. Uh, I, I was not a big fan of hers in years past, but I just thought that she just completely destroyed uh, the opposition argument to Kavanaugh. I mean, she just went through it point by point, and the bottom line is is that so, something perhaps happened to Susan uh, to uh, Christine Ford, but there's just no corroboration at all 
uh, of her allegations. Uh, Susan uh, Collins and, uh, and and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Maine and West Virginia, respectively, they are uh, they're really the, the demons as far as uh, Democrats are concerned. And, uh, and and do you think Manchin is going to be switching allegiance? And how does he go back into the caucus with the Democrats? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, uh, honestly, after this election, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Manchin switch over and become a Republican. And then if the Republicans are smart, they would put him in charge of the uh, Energy Committee and depose Lisa Murkowski. And this isn't the first time Murkowski has stabbed the party in the back. I mean, she uh, famously, as you know, was elected this last time by running a, uh, a write-in candidacy against the guy who won the primary. A Tea Party Republican won the Republican primary in Alaska, beat her, uh, and she ran a write-in campaign and defeated him, and the Republicans still welcomed her back at that point. How does this compare? How does the last uh, two weeks compare to the two weeks that led up to the Clarence Thomas hearings 27 years ago? Well, I mean, there's no question that uh, there was a great deal of opposition among the Democrats. I mean, there's no doubt about that at all. But, and, you know, it's been a long time, too. So, I mean, I, I can't honestly dredge up all that emotion. Um, but I just, I think social media is what really pumps everything up, Roy, in a way that we didn't have before. Before, you had newspapers, you had radio, you had TV. Um, but so the immediacy of social media just keeps these issues in people's faces 24 hours a day, really. And people try to outdo one another, whether it's this issue or other issues. If, if one person on social media tweets or, 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 or posts a thought, an opinion, the next person is going to want to do better. The next person is going to be more uh, extreme, if you will. It just, it just seems to take on, it doesn't seem to take on, uh, it does take on a life of its own. Right. And, of course, you also have the complete abdication of responsibility by the media. I mean, uh, to, for to have credible publications or formerly credible publications running with things like this gang rape allegation. I mean, uh, as Susan Collins said yesterday, and this is a moderate Republican who often sides with the Democrats. I mean, she herself said these, those claims are just so outlandish. Uh, I think, in fact, I think that that probably hurt the Democrats more than anything, is when, they, when these really ridiculous claims started coming out and actually being, being uh, given some credence by the news media. When, when women say, look, it's not up to a man to decide whether a woman has been sexually assaulted, uh, it's not up to a man to cast judgment, it's not up to men to cast judgment, and uh, women have to be believed, uh, what's the response well, again, I think that, that you don't even see women saying that in our polls. You see some women saying that, and, and quite often it's younger women. Uh, but, you know, most people, for example, we did a survey this week. We, you, you know, Kavanaugh's statement about uh, this confirmation process is a national disgrace. You've replaced uh, confirm and deny, or advise and consent, pardon me, with uh, search and destroy. Fifty-four percent of voters agreed with that. They agreed that he was right, that this thing with this process was awful. And uh, even 40% of Democrats had problems with the process. Um, so I think fair-minded people, when they see this stuff, uh, that's the reaction they have. And I think we're in a, a very dangerous place, Roy, when we have, you know, only uh, blacks can write about blacks, only women can judge women, only men can judge men. Um, you know, when we've got that kind of standard, uh, I don't see how a society stays together when it's like that. Well, let me ask you about your society. You and I spoke earlier this year about a poll result that, uh, that Rasmussen found uh, on Rasmussen Reports. 31% of Americans told Rasmussen they expect a civil war within five years. 
Is that a shooting war they're talking about, or is it, uh, is it just an, un, uh, an increase <laughs> well, in the uncivil dialogue? We didn't ask them, but I mean, face it. I mean, you you have seen it. You all have seen it up there, looking at what's going on. And post the Trump election, uh, we have seen. I mean, stuff like I've never seen. I mean, this this whole Kavanaugh thing is about the most despicable thing I've ever seen in in Washington. And I've been covering Washington politics day to day since 1980, and I've never seen any. I mean, it, it's been pretty bad. But my God, I mean, they were going to destroy this man and his family. Uh, just to keep, just to keep uh, a Trump nominee, if you will, a conservative Trump nominee off of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think Lindsey Graham really captured that in his remarks at the hearing when he said, uh, you know, God forbid if you all ever get in power. I mean, this is really totalitarian stuff. I'm looking at this news story from the Washington Examiner, and it quotes Rasmussen Reports. The latest survey from Rasmussen Reports found 59% of all voters, quote, are concerned that those opposed to President Trump's policies will resort to violence. Fifty-nine percent. Yeah, again, oh, there's definitely no question about it. And actually, it was a little slightly higher last year, right after the uh, that crazed Democratic guy shot up the Republicans who were practicing for the softball game. Uh, but I mean, again, if you look at the comments that are being made today, I mean, this uh, there was a professor at Georgetown University, America's oldest. Catholic University, I might add, saying that all white men should be killed and castrated. I mean, when you're seeing things like that in the in print, uh, and, and people saying things like that out loud, you're like, whoa, this isn't healthy. Not only that, let's go back to what you said about media. If you're an editor of a newspaper or a program director of a radio or television network, and you're allowing that kind of stuff on your on your pages or on 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 air. What does that say about where where media? What you know, media has become so polarized in in its own approaches to to. Oh yeah, no. But the, that, I mean, honestly, I, I I say this to people nowadays, and I'm I'm sad to say this, but I'm not a really. There is no media outlet in the world that I am aware of anymore that you can turn to for the facts, that and trust the facts. I mean, just tra- traditional news outlets that. Sure, they had some spin in there, but at least you knew they had the basic facts. I'm not even sure that there's a place you can go now. I mean, somebody somebody pointed out a story to me this morning on CNN that was criticizing Melania Trump for wearing a pith helmet, saying that she was evoking the colonialist past. No, and that was a CNN news story. For God's sake. I know. I mean, it's... But meanwhile, of course, Trump now, what has Trump done this week? You know, he's basically ran through a renegotiation of NAFTA. Uh, unemployment's at its lowest rate in the United States since 1969. Uh, I mean, he's just knocking down. Now he's going to put uh, Kavanaugh on the court, uh, I presume, in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, so, I mean, there's real news going on. But meanwhile, CNN is focusing on Melania Trump wearing a pith helmet. Of course, there was also a piece of paper stuck to the bottom of the president's shoe when he was getting on the on the plane. Exactly. A lot of networks I mean, that, thought that, that, that was necessary. That's how absurd it is. I know. And I suppose, in one sense, uh, there's some there's some uh, smart on Trump's part because he keeps he keeps the media focused on the bouncing ball of some outrageous comment yeah, while yeah. he's doing while he's getting all this stuff it's done. Like, it's like what I do with my dogs. Yeah, uh, but it's. You know, it's but these are these are crazy times. I mean, really, the the news media is complicit in all this. Their handling of the Kavanaugh thing is just a, a national disgrace. About thirty seconds, uh, Fran, and thank you again for the time. Is Kavanaugh compromised as a Supreme Court judge? 
Well, I think the left will try to make him look, look that way, but I think once he gets on there, you know, people will forget about it. They forgot about Judge Thomas over time. Yeah, there's something else will come up. Something else will appear. Right. As There'll always. be a new outrage next week. Thanks so much for your time, Fran. Always a pleasure. Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, former editor of The Washington Times. Last Sunday on the program, former Alberta prosecutor Scott Newark revealed he'd uh, researched convicted child murderer Terry Lynn McClintock's options at patrol, uh, parole rather, and found that McClintock is eligible not in 16 years from now as was publicly believed and reported, but in fact she's eligible in six years because McClintock was sentenced to life in prison, no parole opportunity for 25 years, before the elimination of Section 745 of Canada's criminal code, the so-called faint hope clause. Mr. Newark joins us today. What made you think of going to check that out, Scott? Well, um, as you will probably recall, I was uh, very much involved in trying to get the section repealed in the first place. I know that, yeah. When I was working as the executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, and the murder of a police officer constitutes first-degree murder. And so a lot of the cases uh, uh, where this uh, section became applicable involved uh, uh, murdered police officers. And I remember being struck so much by the uh, the sense of betrayal that the families of the uh, of the victims had that they thought that the justice system, you know, had imposed the most serious penalty, and then literally ten years in advance of that, all of, all of a sudden they found out that uh, you know the person could apply for early early release. And by the way, if they were held in custody uh, pending arrest pursuant to Section 746, they also got credit for the uh, the pretrial custody. And it was that sense of betrayal of the uh, of the justice system of the victims' families and of Canadians generally that uh, that very much caught a nerve. And I was, as I say, very much involved in the legislation trying to get this repealed. We made some changes initially in the 90s, but it was uh, only after the uh, Harper government was elected, and of course they only had their majority after uh, 2011. And so when I was going back over the notes preparing for the show. I saw the just the dates of the offenses and the conviction dates and realized that couldn't have happened then. So all I did was went back. I mean, it probably, because I knew what I was looking for, it probably only took me about 20 minutes, and found that, in fact, the uh, convictions and murders themselves had predated the repeal, which meant there was no retroactive application, which meant that, in fact, she would be still eligible to apply for the early, early release after 15 years. And what really, you know, frankly... Uh, makes me shake my head and uh, generate a sense of anger as well, too. Uh, how come the uh, Justice Minister never said anything about that? How come the Public Safety Minister, who is a lawyer, never made sure that the Canadians knew the truth? That is, that is something that shouldn't have happened. People should be able to rely on their most senior officials and the justice system, in my opinion, so that we know what's actually going on. And, and you know, congratulations to uh, the Stafford family for uh, helping uh, expose this so we realize uh, essentially the dysfunctionality of our system. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct. The Justice Minister and the Public Safety Minister have uh, some explaining to do. Now, well, I want to I go back to 1996. Yeah. And I read a transcript, of a parla- part of a transcript, of a parliamentary committee that you participated on with uh, the then-president of the Canadian Police Association, and Section 745, the early, or the faint hope clause, was the discussion point. Somebody raised in that, and I think it might have been you, 
that one of these hearings costs the Canadian taxpayer just south of a million dollars to, you know, once you factor in all the expenses and salaries and everything that's involved. So these are not cheap. It's a, it's a million bucks a shot, and they're not going to get out. They're not, well, Section 745 has worked, actually, once or Excuse twice. Me, uh, yes, uh, it had an 83% success yeah. rate. Yeah, what? An 83% success rate. Those people who, those murderers who sought the, quote, faint hope, we called it the sure thing because it had an 83% success rate. I did not know it was that high. Yes. 83%. Yes. So much for faint hope, right? Yeah, so much for faint hope. Yes. Good Lord. The, the real th- I go back to that point, uh, uh, Roy, because I think that's what's at the core of this, is that you have uh, increasingly this, um, or uh, to be fair, I think we have made some improvements, but this, in effect, a say one thing, do another justice thing, that's what so offended people. And I remember the time when we started to make the changes. One of them was to actually require judges, when they sentenced somebody to, you know, life, no parole, 25 years, to actually say, but by the way, you are eligible to apply after 15 years for this faint hope clause. And we somewhat um, cynically, my uh, advocates for the reform, myself included, actually described that amendment as making judges tell the truth act. Now, I have to jump in here because we're, we're out of time, but I have to say this. You've again proven that over the last 30 years that I've known you, we're very fortunate to have had Scott Newark on our side fighting for better justice and a better justice system in this country. Without you, God knows where we'd be. So thanks so much, Scott. Thank you. But let me also add that thank you for actually making the decision that you want to get these issues out there. Because out, without that, the public would not be aware of that. And that's critical. Happy Thanksgiving, my friend. You as well, sir. Bye-bye. Scott Newark. The uh, Islamic Circle of North America for Canada is hosting a weekend conference in Toronto. It's called Carry the Light. And speakers include uh, vitriolic Linda Sarsour, Lord Nazir Ahmed, who was suspended from the British House of Lords. I, I'm uh, reading from, a, from uh, a report in the Clarion Report on allegations he blamed a Jewish conspiracy for his imprisonment for dangerous driving. And Imam Siraj Wahaj, a former vice president of the Islamic Society of North America, ISNA, and uh, identified as an unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, also just suspended for a year and fined ISNA, the Islamic um, Society of North America, $550,000 over concerns it may have provided resources to armed militants. Now, the, uh, the Islamic Circle of North America is calling the, the the meeting, and I'm trying to get through all of this paper that is here as well concerning the vote in the Senate, the purpose of this convention is to provide avenues for Muslim community in Canada for personal excellence in faith, worship, and morality. It's also a platform to share the basis for moral, social, and economic development. Um, joining me on the program is Rahil Raza, educator, author, Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, speaker on diversity who was given a standing ovation uh, in Canada's Parliament. Always good to talk to you, Rahil. Thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Tom Quiggan, intelligence expert who worked with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations, certified arms inspector. He's also the author of Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada. He's court certified as an expert on terrorism. Hi, Tom. 
Hi, Roy. Thanks for the invite. Well, good to have you with us. Uh, Rahil, why don't we start with you? You, uh, Your piece in on the Clarion Project report was Carry the Light of Hate coming soon to Toronto. Why did you write that? Well, because I saw the list of speakers who on the ITNA website are referred to as renowned speakers and scholars, but uh, they have a very, very uh, black history. I mean, everybody knows about Linda Sarsour, uh, the remarks that she has made, which are not only um, homophobic, anti-Semitic, misogynist. She has, uh, uh, you know, said that uh, American Muslims should not humanize Israelis. Then we have Imam Siraj Wahaj, and not only was he an unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, but he was a character witness in the trial of Omar Abdul Rahman, who is linked to the attack, and he described him as a respected scholar and a strong preacher of Islam. So if these are the people who are known as respected scholars, then I think that we have a problem with scholarship <laughs> and, you know, who we call scholars. I was, li- I was looking at, uh, at Linda Sarsour's Twitter account, and uh, 22 hours ago she tweeted, a white woman senator is talking about presumption of innocence that is never offered to black men in America. You are watching white supremacy live on the Senate floor, and she followed that with Senator Susan Collins as the mother and grandmother of white women in America who gave us Donald Trump presidency, the 53%. She's a disgrace, and her legacy will be that she was a traitor to women and marginalized communities. History will not treat her kindly. That's Linda Sarsour. Well, she's a woman who likes to play identity politics, and, you know, she talks about white women, but I think she should take an internal look at what she has said and what she has done. Some of the really horrible remarks she made about Ayan Hissi Ali and Bridget Gabriel on Twitter, she, she removed. And, of course, it's very easy to put something on Twitter and then take it away. But these are certified hate mongers, uh, including Lord Nazir Ahmed. So two of the speakers have been invited from the United States, one of them from the U.K., all across the Atlantic. Why? To come here because they have a history of anti-Semitism, of hate mongering. Why does Canada, why does ICNA need to have people who have such a uh, challenging history of what they have said, which is out in the open. I mean, it's just not my word for it. It is very clearly in the open. They're not even afraid to make these remarks. Tom, what's your view? Well, this is a a fascinating uh, conference, Roy. Uh, Catherine Bullock is going to be there, as uh, some folks have mentioned as well. She's from the Islamic Society of North America. She also works at the University of Toronto as a part-time professor there, and she tells us, while speaking at the University of Toronto, that it's normal for Canadians to want caliphate, and it's normal for Canadians to want Sharia law. Now, it's worth noting that uh, ISNA recently had a charity uh, revoked by the CRA, which you mentioned, but they've had three other charity revocations in the past. Two of those have been for funding terrorism. So what actually really drives me crazy about this whole conference this weekend is that it is ICNA, the Islamic Circle of North America, which is a federally registered charity which is hosting this conference. In other words... Canadian taxpayers are subsidizing this through CRA and through their charity program. On top of that, ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, is a sponsor for it. It has also, as we noted, run a number of different charities, and as I mentioned, two of them have been busted for funding terrorism. 
So no matter how you look at this thing, whether you look at the host, you look at the sponsor, or you look at the individual individuals who are coming, all of them have direct or indirect links to extremism and terrorism, yet at the end of the day, the Canadian taxpayer is being asked to shell out and help uh, subsidize the cost of this thing. So that kind of drives me nuts. So they're going, they're going to, they're going to, clearly, they're going to disagree with the position you're taking. By the way, if Linda Sarsour can say these things, why is Jordan Peterson a problem as far as freedom of speech is concerned? Well, I guess the difference would be the Canadian taxpayer isn't being asked to subsidize uh, Jordan Peterson, where they are being asked to subsidize ICNA. Now, just to be clear, the Islamic Circle of North America, ICNA, says that according to their own teaching, women are inferior, slave girls should be legal under certain conditions. They say that the West is the enemy of Islam, and they say that their form of Islam is incompatible with democracy. So I'd like to know how they even got a charitable status in the first place. Good question. Um, why, Rahil, the final word is yours. We have a minute here. Well, I wish the government would do something about it. There was a big hue and cry about this conference taking place. It's not that people didn't know. Uh, there was pushback to say, why are these speakers being invited? But, uh, you know, ICNA has gone ahead and they are hosting this conference today and tomorrow. I think it's appalling. As a Muslim, I'm ashamed. And I would never want to be associated with any one of these speakers or the people who are hosting them. Thank you both for joining us. Cheers, Roy. Tom Quiggin and Rahil Raza on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Tom's book is Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada. Uh, I'll be more than happy to provide uh, equal time to uh, the the heads of the Islamic Circle of North America to, uh, to speak to their conference, speak about their conference next weekend, if they so choose. Just get in touch with me at uh, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great day.